tons of pizza. There's things over there. I think there's still coffee. So uh, we will dive in. So um, we have three Wednesdays in a row, and then we'll have two off, and we'll start the new year. So I wanted to do something that would just fill these three before we started the new full-blown topic. So what I wanted to look at, um, since it is Advent season, is I want to look at the prophecies concerning the birth of Christ in Matthew's gospel. There's several. Um, the one we're covering tonight is one of the more complicated ones, so we'll do it by itself. Um, but the others will we'll group up and pair. And uh, this one is just, this is probably my favorite. I've talked about it more. So if you've been around long enough, you've probably heard me do this. If you were at chapel at the Home of Grace a few weeks ago, y'all heard this very recently. So uh, I expect y'all to know the answers. Um, but uh, we will dive into what is probably my favorite um, Christmas-related prophecy, and that's the virgin birth prophecy. So I want to read from Matthew where we see this um, stated or quoted in the New Testament, very beginning of the New Testament, Matthew um, chapter 1, verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. What's the emphasis of that verse? So before they came to be together, she was found to be with child. Virgin. Virgin. That, that, that is the key idea. And that, so, you know, I guess Abby's the only little one in the room, but she knows how that works. In our, in our world, we call that the baby dance because we live on a farm and they see that stuff all the time. So there's none of that going on, and she gets pregnant. That's the point, right? So virgin birth. It's explicit that that is the meaning. So her husband Joseph, being a just man and willing, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, why does he want to divorce her at all? What's the assumption? Adultery, exactly. I mean, there's only one way you make a baby. And uh, he, it wasn't him. They're betrothed. It should have been him. It wasn't him. Actually, it shouldn't have been him yet. But uh, it shouldn't be anybody. But it definitely wasn't him. So he knows there's no way this is correct. So he's going to divorce her. But he's going to do it in a quiet way. Um, he doesn't want to make a big scene. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So what's the angel affirming in that verse? She is a virgin, but this is a work of God. The Holy Spirit has done this. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. What's the Old Testament name for Jesus? Do you know? Do I? Well, Emmanuel is the, we'll get, we'll reference that in a moment. But not Joseph. That's close, though. Yeshua, and we don't say Yeshua, though. What's the English version of Yeshua? Joshua. So they will call his name Joshua, or in Greek, Isus, which is, of course, in English, Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. In this case, Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So let's go back. Let's look at Isaiah. Let's see this prophecy in context, and then bring it back to today. Everybody excited? I know y'all are like, we just heard this the other day. Can you say the name? Isaiah 14. The one, the name. You know what I'm talking about. Did you just do it right? Yeah. All right, well, we're going to go read that story. All right. I'm very impressed now. I'm not going to lie. Uh, you, you, you just... Yeah, all right. Isaiah 
chapter 7. Now, to do that, uh, let's get nerdy for a minute. Can we do some geography? All right, I'm going to try to recreate the map on your outline. It will not be to scale. Ooh, definitely not to scale. Okay. <laughs> Can y'all see it over there? Is that yeah. angled enough? Okay, so this is water. Yeah. Sea Galley, Dead Sea, Persian Gulf. Everybody with me? So where's Israel on this map? Over there by the Sea Galley. Over here. So I've got dots on there, roughly in those positions. Everybody see that? Yeah. Those are the capitals of four different countries yep. that are very significant. They're listed down there, and they are in order from bottom to top. So number one down there, that's Jerusalem, which is the capital of what nation? Judah. Judah. I'll put a J. Then you have um, Samaria, which is the capital of what nation? Ephraim. Ephraim or Israel. Oh, okay. There. Do I have, what do I have down there? Ephraim? Ephraim. Ephraim and Israel are the same thing. I'm going to close that door. They're, whatever game they're playing, they're having a good time. And it's, it's bouncing this way really well. So. so I think it was distracting me more than y'all, but I don't know. So Samaria is the name of the city and a region. Well, at this point in history, Samaria is not a region yet. Um, Samaria is just the name of that city. It will become the name of the region because of the events that happen in this text, but not yet. So Judah, okay, it says, I said Ephraim, so I'll make that an E. But Ephraim and Israel are the same. And then up here is uh, Damascus. And you know that one. I'm not going to put damn on there. It's about to. Okay. All right, but Damascus, where do you know that one from? Syria. Syria. It's Syria, but we know it from the New Testament. What, what happened? Paul on his way to Damascus, Syria, that nation still exists today. And then way over here, we have Nineveh. Now, you know the name Nineveh, not because of this story, but because of another one. Jonah. So let's just camp out on Jonah for a second. Jonah is from Israel, and he was called to go preach where? In Nineveh. What was he supposed to tell them? Repent. Repent. Or else what? You'll be destroyed. Of course, you know the whole side story. Jonah doesn't go. Goes out in the boat, gets swallowed by a whale, eventually gets spit up, repents, goes over there, preaches the message, and to Jonah's very discontentment, what does uh, what does Assyria do? They, they do repent. Now it's shallow repentance, but it's it's a repentance of some kind, and uh, God responds by doing what? <laughs> Nothing technically. He doesn't destroy them because they repented. So this is that era. What we're talking about is the same time that Jonah story is in the same era as what we're talking about here. So Judah is the southern kingdom. Ephraim is the northern kingdom. You remember how many tribes there were in the kingdom of Israel? Twelve. Two of them are down here. Ten of them are up here. Judah is technically the name of one of the tribes, right? Why do you think they've become the name of those two tribes together? They're bigger. Judah and, and he, this is really nerd level if you know the other one. Benjamin. Wow. Good job, Ted. So Judah and, oh, you just did Benjamin. Okay. Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin. And then the E is Ephraim. Ephraim's the largest tribe 
and the ten tribes that make up the northern kingdom. So it often it's just called Israel. Sometime in this passage, it's going to be called Ephraim. Now, we have to get the kings in here. We have Ahaz here. The hardest part about this prophecy is just a bunch of names. So Ahaz in Jerusalem, king of Judah. We're going to have Pekah, king of Ephraim in Samaria. We're going to have Rezin, king of Syria in Damascus. And we'll never actually use this guy's name, but if you care, it's Tiglath-Pileser II. He is the king of Assyria in Nineveh. So sometimes I just say nation one, nation two, nation three, nation four. Whichever one works for you, uh, we'll go with it. Nation one, nation two, nation three, nation four. All right, we all on the basic idea of what's happening so far. Are those, those nations exist. That's all you need to know at this point. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. Here's what happens. In the days of Ahaz, he's the king of Jerusalem, I'm son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, up here at Damascus, and then Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, and Israel in this case is Ephraim. So you got these three things. When that's happening, when those guys are king, it says um, that the king of Israel came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount the attack. So who's attacking who? Israel. At this point, all we've been told is Assyria, I'm sorry, Israel is attacking Jerusalem. That should already tell you something's off. What are they supposed to be? Brothers. They're brothers. They really should be one nation. Now I'm supposed to be two different nations. So what would we call this? Civil, civil war. This is civil war, technically. Now, the nations have split. So I guess at this point, technically, you don't call it civil war. But from an ideal perspective, this is civil war. So Israel is trying to attack Jerusalem, trying to kill the king of Judah. But have they succeeded? No. No, can't do it. Too, it's too difficult. So, here's what happens. When the house of David, that is Jerusalem, was told Syria is in league with Ephraim. Who's in league with who? So this guy is now teaming up with this guy. How do you think that's going to make Jerusalem feel? All right, this is not good. We've been teamed up against. And if we talk in terms of the size of your nation... It kind of looks like that. Right, that's not the scale in any remote way, but there is a massive distinction. In fact, to scale, even on this map, Israel's too big. It's, it's actually very tiny. If you, some maps at this size don't even have the, the river and the, the Sea of Galilee and the, the Dead Sea because it's small relative to this whole area. So it's, when that happened, it says the heart of Ahaz, that is Judah, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. All right, verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, new character, who's Isaiah? He's a prophet. And what book did he write? Isaiah. Isaiah, very good. So Isaiah writes Isaiah. He said, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shirjazab, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the washer's field. In other words, there's a very specific spot. Go talk to Ahaz, the king. And he said to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps 
of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramaliah. So it's complicated to get in here, use all the different names. But just to be clear, Isaiah is telling the king down here, don't be worried about these two guys. That's a message from the Lord. Don't be worried about those guys. Further, he says, um, what, what verse did I leave on? Five. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramaliah have devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord. So don't be worried about their plan because of, verse 7, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. So what's God telling Ahaz through Isaiah? Ain't going to happen. They team up all day long out of the mouth of the Lord himself. Not going to happen. Not going to defeat you. It says, for the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim, this one, will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So what's the Lord's comfort? Don't worry about these two guys coming to get you, because what's going to happen? This one is going to be completely destroyed. We have a time frame, though, and how long? 65 years. 65 years. All right, we are in the 700s. Right, 700s. B.C. You know what B.C. stands for, right? Before Christ. 700s. This is slight upper 700s. And then, so how much time is there between this event and Jesus actually coming? A little over 700 years. Okay, so something's going to happen 700 years from now or within 65 years. It says 65, right? Everybody with me? Okay. It's going to get complicated to so just just work it out. 65 years, Ephraim will no longer be a nation. And again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. This is verse 19, I mean, 10. Ask as a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. So what's the Lord telling Ahaz to do? Ask for a sign. What does it mean to ask for a sign? Something miraculous. So God said, I've made a promise. Ephraim's going to die before they destroy you. Ask for some sign to prove it. So, I mean, what would you ask for? What could happen? Yeah. Well, the sign. Well, what, what kind of sign? You'd want something that you knew was definitely from God. Something that, you know, nobody else could do. That's where the fleece thing comes from in, in the book of Joshua. Or is that, no, that's, uh, that's, that's Judges. Um, or, I mean, have you ever done something like this? All right, Lord, if it's your will, let it be A. If it's not your will, let it be B. You've probably done something like that. That's that's a sign. So let's see what Ahaz says. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Right answer or wrong answer? Wrong answer, because God asked him to do it. <laughs> and actually, it's also sarcastic. We know something about Ahaz. Ahaz is an idolater. He does not follow Yahweh. We know this from Kings. We know a lot about his character. He's specifically described as one of the bad kings of Israel, uh, sorry, of Judah, and he does not care about the Lord's 
will, the Lord's way, the Lord's law, anything. So when he says, I will not put the Lord to the test, he's actually being sarcastic. Oh, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. So, and you can see in how Isaiah responds, that that's exactly how he meant it. And so he said to him, hear then, O house of David, is it too little that you weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. A sign of what? That within 65 years, this nation will be destroyed. So what's the sign that within 65 years, Ephraim will be destroyed? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Where have we heard that? That's the Matthew prophecy. So technically speaking, however, the virgin birth prophecy is about what? Well, the New Testament says it's about Jesus. But just reading it, and all we had was Isaiah chapter 7. What would you say the prophecy was about? Yeah, the destruction of Israel within 65 years of Ahaz being given this prophecy. All right, so let's see, let's see what it works out to be in context. We're going to have a virgin, bear son, call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So what's going to happen before this kid's old enough to choose sides, so to speak? So we have two time frames. We have a kid that's going to be born, and within 65 years and before this kid's old enough to pick sides, both nations will be destroyed, both Syria and Ephraim. Okay? But how does it feel like it has anything to do with Jesus so far? If we're honest, the answer's no. Okay. It seems to have something to do with Israel being destroyed. Instead, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. And what is it that he's going to bring? The king of Assyria. So the king from up here, in other words, he's, he's going to do what? He's going to destroy both of those. That's what the prophecy is. And when will that happen? How will we know it's happening? It'll be less than 65 years, and it'll be before this kid that's going to be born is old enough to choose its side. Okay. And that day the Lord will whistle from the fly that is at the end of the stream of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will come and settle in the steep ravines and in the cliffs of the rock and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. And that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair and the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. I love how it puts beard last, because, you know, that's the most shameful thing to lose. <laughs> okay, but who's going to do the shaving? Technically, the Lord is shaving, and what's the razor? Assyria. The king of Assyria. And who's getting shaved? Syria and Israel. 
Right, so definitely those two nations are going to be shamed. Which one is the beard? Yep. Even the beard. Now, which one is the which beard? One? Oh, I can't tell you yet. That's part of the twist. <laughs> okay, there's a twist coming. All right, but uh, let's just let's skip over to chapter 8. So just move a paragraph. Jumping on chapter 8. Actually, let's fill in a couple blanks because I'm just running wild here. All right, so the idolatry of God's people. During the time of Ahaz, God's people had fallen into idol, idol worship. And then God sent the prophet Isaiah to preach to an unrepentant people. Unrepentant. This is key. That's just in chapter 6. And that's Judah, yes. Unrepentant people. And in the prophecy, which is what we just went over in chapter 7, a child will be born from a virgin. And it says before the child is, and I'm just saying old, um, the nations in question will be destroyed because Emmanuel, God is with us. That'll make sense in a moment. All right, you follow that? So let's get into chapter 8. Then the Lord said to me, who's me? Isaiah. Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters a tablet. That's not exactly our lingo 90% of the time. What's a tablet? Scroll. A writing device. Let's say a pull out a letterhead and write this on it. So in other words, what's the Lord doing? Dictating a letter. Follow the lingo. It says, so belonging to, and here's the one I like to say, Mahershala Hashbaz. <laughs> so who is the letter addressed to? Mahershala Hashbaz. And I will get a reliable witness, Uriah the priest, and Zechariah the son of Jericho. Jericho. I can never say that guy's name. I can say Mahershala Hashbaz. Yeah. Right. But I cannot say Jeberekiah. All right, to attest for me. Now here, see what happens in verse 3. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. So who has a baby? The prophetess does, meaning Isaiah has a child. And is it a boy or a girl? It's a boy. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Mahershalal Hashbaz. So who the, who's the letter to? Isaiah's son. There's a letter to Isaiah's son, who's born to the prophetess. It says, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So before this child's old enough to choose sides, what's going to happen? These two nations are destroyed. Well, any hint at who it feels like this child may be? <laughs> Nobody wants to answer. What's the child? Mahershala Hashbaz isn't Jesus. He's Isaiah's son and the prophetess's son. But what, what is he in the context? He's the promised child. So we have an interesting thing happening in Hebrew. The word we translate virgin technically just means young woman, which typically in their culture did mean virgin, but it could just mean young woman. So if you don't have to translate it virgin, who is it that is the Alma, that has the, the virgin that's had a child? The prophetess has. 
Okay, everybody's like, oh no, this guy's gonna. Nope, know where I'm going. Just bear, be patient. <laughs> Work with me. I'm not a crazy liberal. I'm just. We gotta, we gotta deal with the, the passage that is before us. So, but I'll, I'll prove it. Let's keep going. Verse five. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh, that flow gently, and rejoiced over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. Now, the river is actually a reference to this river, the Euphrates, which is the border of the kingdom of Assyria. I mean, we're, we're in verse 7. Therefore... Behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. It will rise over all its channels, go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Now, who's he talking to? Mahershalal Hashbaz. What's God call Mahershalal Hashbaz? Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Who's the Emmanuel child? Mahershalal Hashbaz is the Emmanuel child. There's really no way around it. God calls him the Emmanuel here. Literally, it's God with us. He is the Emmanuel child. So, but quick twist before we deal with the whole, wait, I thought Jesus was the Emmanuel child part. And that's the part you're asking. Real quick, whose beard got shaved? Did you see it in the text? Where's the river flow? This mighty river of Assyria is going to flow on into these nations and it's going to flow on into where? Judah. It says Judah. Wait, wait, wait. What was the whole point of the prophecy? Oh, don't worry about <clears throat> Damascus and, and Samaria because God's going to destroy them. But what is also going to happen? He's coming to Judah. He's coming to Judah. And he's going to rise that river up to what point? Reaching even to the neck. But that's a significant statement. To say the river gets this far up means it doesn't do what? It doesn't drown. Well, historically, this is exactly what happens. The king of Assyria marches down, decimates both of these regions, repopulates them, and becomes Samaria um, instead of Ephraim. But he gets down into Judah... And he can't take it. He gets them all the way to siege, to Jerusalem itself. He can't take the city. And all of this happens within, guess how many years? 65. This whole narrative happens within a 65-year time span. Assyria cannot conquer Judah. In fact, when Judah is conquered, it's not even Assyria. It's 200 years later, and it's what nation? Uh, well, Babylon. Oh. Babylon is who, who gets them after that. So the Lord is, what he's prophesying is exactly right. So it says, be broken, you peoples, be shattered, give ear, all you far countries, strap on your armor and be shattered, strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. How do you say God is with us in Hebrew? Emmanuel. Emmanuel. So what's the prophecy about? Emmanuel 
God's going to be with us, what's the point? With Judah. Well, how's he show up? He shows up with a razor in his hand. He shows up holding the king of Assyria, holding his armies and saying, look what I'm bringing to town. And he pours it out on his own people. So in what form is God showing up when we say, God with us, Emmanuel? Wrath. He's showing up in wrath. That's the whole point of this passage. That the Emmanuel child will be a symbol of God's wrath being poured out. Now so far, what does that have to do with Jesus in the New Testament? Everyone's like, ah, it's got to have something, right? It's got to have something to do with Jesus in the New Testament. Well, let's just summarize that. Flip your page. Fulfillment number one, which should be a giveaway. Well, Jesus is from Judah, so that's kind of preserved right now, but later it gets wiped out. Yeah. So when Jesus comes, these aren't two nations. There's not an Ephraim and a Judah. There's just Judah. That's why we call them, instead of Judites, we call them what? Jews. That's where the term Jew came from. It's just a shortened version of the only part that survived. All right, but let's fulfill it number one. So Isaiah has a son called Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So follow how that fits the prophecy. A child is born. Then God will destroy the nations, the two above. That's uh, before the child is old enough to choose. And then God's wrath sweeps into Judah. And that's the Emmanuel part. That's the God with us part. So, so far... Technically, there's no good news in chapter 7 or 8. However, we have to get to chapter 9. And we know Matthew was thinking about this whole narrative because he quotes the beginning of Isaiah 9 in the next or two chapters later in Matthew. Matthew chapter, actually, it might be chapter 4. Double check real quick. It is 4, 4, 15. He quotes Isaiah chapter 9. So he's thinking about the whole context. Here's what it says. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Anybody know what land that is? That's Ephraim. Well, when did he do that? Well, technically, from Ahaz's perspective, that's still future. But how's this prophecy written? Past tense. Well, back in the former time, God brought Assyria down and destroyed this land. So very future reference here. It says, but in the later time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. You never hear it called Galilee in the Old Testament. What's Galilee, though? What's always happening in Galilee? In the New Testament. Jesus is God. Yeah. Almost everything wow. Jesus does is in Galilee, and there's a few stories in Jerusalem. But most of it's Galilee, and Galilee is, is that Ephraim or is that Judah? Judah. It's Ephraim. It's Ephraim. It's part of Ephraim. So he's saying in the latter time, after God does this thing within 65 years, there's going to be something good. There's going to be a glorious way. And the land beyond the Jordan, Jordan, Galilee of the nations. When Jesus starts his ministry, this is what gets quoted. Just 
two chapters after the Emmanuel prophecy. So we know Matthew knows what he's doing here when he makes this quotation. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot in the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Why? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So what happens in chapter 9? You have another child being born. But is this in the former time or in the latter time? It's much later. It has nothing to do with that 65-year window. Nothing at all. There's a child coming who's going to be born. And what kind of battles are going to be going on when this child's born? Did you see what it says? What's going to happen to the, the rod of the oppressor? It's going to be broken. What's going to happen to the garments rolled in blood? It's going to be burned. Why are you burning all your weapons? Why are you burning your, your battle armor? No Because it's over. Victory has come. This is what it's getting at. So a child is coming, and this is going to be true when that child comes. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and you shall, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and, up to, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So what's going to happen? Another child's going to be born. And this child won't be a symbol of these two nations being destroyed, but rather what? Victory. So instead of wrath, it's what? Because he's called the prince of peace. Now let's think about that though. What do we call Jesus? Because Mahershala Hashbaz was one way you could see the Emmanuel child, God with us, but it was God with us in what form? Wrath. What well, does God show up in wrath in the New Testament? Back to Revelation. Fair question. Sorry. What happens on the cross? Wrath. Wrath. So there's still, just imagine this flood of wrath being poured all the way down to Jerusalem. Well, in the New Testament, that's still what happens. This flood of wrath, Jesus says, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What's the cup? It's a big cup. It's the cup of God's wrath. So he's still going to pour it out all the way down to Jerusalem. Except God with us this time means God with us drinking the wrath, not pouring it out on you. So what kind of prophecy is this? <laughs> I just realized there's a major typo. Fulfillment number one and fulfillment number <laughs> two, <laughs> not three. I don't know where that came from. 
I'm blaming on Abby. She was sitting in the room and I thought, it's not your fault. Um, so fulfillment number one and fulfillment number two, what we'll see in the Old Testament is there is a lot of prophecies that are fulfilled cyclically. So something happens in the Old Testament and then Jesus does the, the true version of it in the New Testament. We'll see that again in the very next prophecy we do next week. Out of Egypt, I called my son. When, when Jesus has to go spend a few years in Egypt before he comes back to Galilee, the same thing happens. It's talking about a different scenario, but Jesus re-fulfills it. In fact, this is what Jesus is doing at every point with the Old Testament. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to do what? To fulfill it. Everything that happened in the Old Testament in some way is going to show up in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so Matthew, however, makes it very particular when he quotes this passage. Greek is not like Hebrew. Greek, their word for virgin, guess what it means? Virgin. There's no option. And so what word did he use to translate the Old Testament word that could mean virgin or young woman? What's he do with it in the New Testament? No, it's definitely virgin. There's no question here about how Mary came to be the mother of Jesus. It's as a virgin, but I think the transmission between those two passages is key because in the Old Testament, it was a symbol of wrath. In the New Testament now, we have a symbol of peace. So we fill in any of these blanks yet? So Isaiah, did we do that one? Yeah. Fulfillment, which should be two. Number three, Prince of Peace. So light has come to Galilee. The child is born. The nations will be broken before his might, and his kingdom will reign forever. Is Jesus' kingdom here now? Yeah. Trick question, right? In part, yes, kind of. That's, that's the answer, kind of. It's the now, not yet of the kingdom. But his kingdom is already established here. It's just not in full. And then he will be called the everlasting what that one says. Come on. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What will this child be? He will be God. There's a very direct prophecy in the Old Testament that this coming Messiah wasn't going to be a man only. Going to be God in flesh. So that's the God with us part. All right, so application for today. How are we doing on time? Oh, we're good. So the wrath of God has been poured out on Christ instead of on us. This is Galatians 4, 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. This is why he came. The whole point in coming, the whole point in setting up this Emmanuel prophecy is to give us this visual picture of the wrath coming down, but not on us. The whole point of this narrative is that Jesus will be the one receiving the wrath in our place. And second, at the advent, God literally becomes one of us. He became one of us. And now he abides in us through the Spirit, which is exactly what the new covenant is prophesied to be in Jeremiah 31, 33. Actually, let's, uh, let's look at that real quick. That's, that's not far from where you are in the Old Testament. Just a few pages forward to Jeremiah, next book. Jeremiah chapter 31. Which is the behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, 
But go down, he says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God. They shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. How much more Emmanuel can it get than that? This is what the new covenant was all about, that Jesus would be the Emmanuel with us, literally. And then he furthers that ministry through the work of the Spirit. But also, one more, and you know this one from 1 John 2, 1 through 2. Christ is the he's ever-present, the God with us, as our advocate before the Father. So you know 1 John 2, 1 through 2? My little children, I'm writing these things to you in order that you might not sin. But when you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the uh, the word I love. Propitiation. Propitiation um, concerning our sin. So what's the whole point? Jesus is there advocating before the Father in what capacity? Do you remember what propitiation means? No, we're getting super nerdy, but search the square, can't help it. Propitiation. I'm getting close enough. Um, technically, it's in place of in a satisfactory position. You, you pr- propitiate your wife if you bring flowers home when you made her mad. Right. Now, Jesus, of course, you can't propitiate God on your own. He has to do it himself. And that's what he's doing. So the point being, God's role through Christ as advocate specifically is wrath absorbed. So when John says, I'm writing these things so you might not sin, but when you do sin, what's the first thing that should come to your mind? We have an advocate. So what I and what I love to emphasize there is the first thing is not repent. That would be works. The first thing is Christ. Propitiation. The first thing is grace. Now he goes on in the next few verses to say that happens and you you walk like Christ. That's that's still part of the equation. But it's not first. First is always Christ, the God with us. So Christ is ever present as our advocate before the Father. Okay, I know that one was complicated. Felt a little uh, wishy-washy there at the end, but uh, everybody followed the idea? So I am saying that the virgin birth prophecy is Jesus, but that's the second fulfillment of the prophecy. The first loop in the cycle was Mahershala Hashbaz, and it had to do with the destruction of Ephraim and Syria. And then chapter 9 makes it clear that another child is born in the latter time, that has nothing to do with the time scale at the beginning. And that latter child, of course, is Christ. And he is the greater fulfillment of an Emmanuel because he is God with us. You follow that? And then they specifically use virgin in Greek. So there's no question whatsoever in the Greek language. That's how he's interpreting that verse. Just to be clear, I don't want you to leave here and be like, Brian doesn't believe in the virgin birth. That's not, <laughs> not what I said. <laughs> okay. okay, any questions on that? Follow enough, make enough sense. I know we want all the prophecies to be very straightforward, like three of them are. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. That one's not a lot more complicated than that. He'll be born in Bethlehem. Unfortunately, most of them are more like this. So um, this one's a bit interesting, and it's double, but they're they're more like this. All right, if there's no questions. I I got a question. It's a little bit out of life, but was Ephraim... One of the instigators of 
want, wanting to kill Joseph? Okay, no. Because Ephraim and Manasseh, your two largest tribes in the north. That was one of the sons of Joseph. They are sons of Joseph, okay. correct. So Joseph gets, he's not one of the 12, and technically neither is Levi. Yeah. And so they're replaced with Ephraim and Manasseh. That's why sometimes Manasseh is called a half-tribe. Because, yeah. um, like, depending on how you do the math, you got 14 tribes in the 12 tribes of Israel. It's just, it's, it's, it gets very interesting when you, when you go in there. So, good question, Gene. It mentions in Chapter 8 a reliable witness, Zechariah. I assume that's the Zechariah, the prophet, with the book. Yeah, I haven't asked that question. I can't tell you. I thought the Zechariah, the book, was later. Yeah. I'll have to go back and look. I don't off the top of my head, I don't know. There is more than one Zechariah. I do know that. And it's common Hebrew name, so it's possible, but not, not guaranteed. All right, well, uh, it's early for us, guys, 721. Call that a win. There's a ton of pizza, so please, please take some pizza home. Like, there's just so much pizza here, guys. So, All right, let's pray. <laughs> we'll be dismissed. God, we thank you for tonight. May you bless the time. Um, we have spent together, pray that the time and the word would be fruitful for us, that we would see Christ this season as God with us, the advocate who ever stands before you to plead on our behalf as our propitiation. And I pray that as we get into the Christmas season, that it wouldn't be about um, materialism, um, it wouldn't be about our worldly possessions, but rather about the grace and mercy of Christ um, and his coming and his advent. Help us to identify with the early church and that longing for his return as we long for it here in the New Testament era. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys.